Okay, let's, uh, let's begin. Hello again. <laughs> okay, this evening, what I'm going to speak about, and the first part might sound a little bit technical. Hope not, but it might do. We're going to move away from a little bit, a bit of the early teachings on emptiness into the Mahayana teachings on emptiness. And most of you will have now looked at your, hopefully, at your uh, Heart Sutra. Yes? Yeah. Want to look at the Heart Sutra? Okay, in many ways you've got a condensation within the Heart Sutra of the Mahayana views on emptiness. It's very, very condensed form. There's many, many different versions of the Heart Sutra. One of the things you start to find around about the 3rd century, end of the 3rd century BCE, coming into the 2nd century BCE, is the arising of texts which become known as Prajnaparamita, which is the perfection of insight. Usually terms of perfection of wisdom, but wisdom, a bit of a funny translation for this term, Prajna. So we're getting the arising of these texts. They're clearly from a historical point of view. I know it might offend people if they're believers in this. Um, but from a historical point of view, they are not the word of the Buddha. They're arising much, much later. They're probably inspired, no doubt. Um, but they're not, strictly speaking, the word of the Buddha. So Mahayana Sutras start to make an appearance. And there's a number of things that start to happen in Mahayana Sutras. Um, and three real terms that you start to get, which are there in the early texts, uh, but become, if you like, the, the major themes of these texts. The first is the importance of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva, the figure who is dedicated to attaining Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. So that's the goal to attain Buddhahood, to want to become a fully awakened <coughs> Buddha. So it's not, the, it's not the goal of the Arahant, as it is in the early tradition, but it's this, in some senses, much longer project uh, that's envisaged. <laughs> if you think Arahantship is difficult, well, just try the Bodhisattva path. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they a little bit of Indian hyperbole, they sort of talk about countless thousands and millions of lifetimes in order to achieve this goal. Um, I think it's just saying it will take a long time, <laughs> really. So the figure is on the Bodhisattva. Um, this marks the new vision in terms of, of uh, Buddhism, really, the concentration. The Bodhisattva figure is there in the early texts because it's there in the figure of the Buddha. Um, you know, in a whole set of literature, some of you might have read some of the tales called Jataka tales. Jataka tales are found throughout the Buddhist traditions, and they tell tales of the the Bodhisattva who's going to become the Buddha, and they are actually really very moral tales about the importance of self-sacrifice, the importance of compassion, the importance of giving. They're very, if you like, they're kind of fables, which tell a very moral story. Um, in fact, in one tale, the Vasandra Jataka, Jataka um, the figure who's going to become the Buddha is so compassionate, he even gives his family away. <laughs> Gets rid of them that way, by giving them away. 
Um, but there are these moral t- there are these moral tales. That's one of the major f- things that you find in these early texts that start to arise. The other is the emphasis on something called skill in means, often referred to as skillful means, but there's actually upaikustula actually means skill in means. And I'll say a little bit about that as we go through. Then the other major element, of course, is shunyata, emptiness. That's really made quite a lot of in these texts. I mean, there are other themes as well, but these are the three major themes that you start to find. And the importance, obviously, of karuna is emphasised as well, of compassion in these texts. They are, if anybody attempts to read them, I don't know if you have, any of you have actually ever attempted to read one of these texts, they are, apart from the Heart Sutra, they are rather kind of go all over the place, probably indicating they were basically written at different periods and put together in these sort of compendiums that they are. Uh, The Diamond Sutra um, is the oldest printed book in the world. Um, It's actually a Chinese version, which if you go into the British Library, you can see. It's on display. It is actually the oldest printed book. And that dates something to the 4th century, something like that. So it's pretty old. Written in China? Pardon? In China. China, Printed in China on woodblock. In Chinese. In Chinese. Fourth century AD. Fourth century AD. Yeah. It's worth going if you're in London. Go into the British Library and have a look. It's usually on display. As as, uh, as I say, the oldest printed book. These themes are taken up by the early Mahayanas, and really, I want where I want to go tonight is the importance of something called Madhyamaka. Madhyamaka is, in a sense, a particular way of looking at things that arises out of the Prajnaparamita texts. And really the chief exponent of it initially is Nagarjuna. I hope I was reasonably contentious at some point. You probably heard me say, I think there's only two figures in the history of Buddhism that are really being radical. One's the Buddha and the other is Nagarjuna. Mm-hmm. And Nagarjuna is really not doing anything other than restating the Buddha's position, except in more dramatic terms. Mm-hmm. I want you to go away and think about that. (laughs) It is uh, meant to be a little bit of a challenge to you. Um, Because much of what gets passed through the history of Buddhism, in some senses, is a watering down, and this is very much my own view, very much a watering down of the Buddha's own message, what he actually comes to say. Um, Basically, Nagarjuna comes along and says, have you actually been listening to what the Buddha said? Has anybody been listening to it? Because it crept into all sorts of metaphysical speculations. Uh, one particular thread which I spoke a little bit about became very, very dominant in all of the traditions, and that was Abhidharma, and Abhidharma scholarship, or Abhidharma in this case because it's Sanskritic. So Abhidharma scholarship became extremely important, and this marked a sea change in the history of Buddhism. I remember one of the things I've been trying to say to you that actually all this stuff, despite its difficulty, is far easier to talk about than it is to do, much of it. You know, so what you got was the arising of scholarship. You know, and really Nagarjuna is the antidote to scholarship. He is an anti-ontological thinker. If you want. In other words, he wants to stop people doing philosophy. He wants to stop people waffling around um, actually 
you know, creating arguments and arguing about this position and that position and I don't know how many dharmas can you get on the head of a pin. That sort of a slight change. But, <laughs> but <laughs> he's trying to get the Buddhists of his own period to see that there's a lot more practical to the Buddha's teaching, a lot more of a practical nature to the Buddha's teaching than this scholarly pursuit that they're all engaged in. When was he, did you say? Nagarjuna is at the end of the 1st century AD, beginning of the 2nd century. His dates are very, you know, it's very difficult to place them, but it's somewhere on the cusp of that period. Now, there's a big change occurring in there at this period, because you're getting all these texts, these Prajnaparamita texts, including Nagarjuna's works, now being written in Sanskrit. You see the emergence, and it's only around this period, at the same time as uh, Nagarjuna is writing, that you see the emergence of the first Buddha images as well. There are no Buddha images prior to around the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. And if you ever look at them, and again, British Museum's a wonderful place to go. If you haven't haunted the British Museum, it's a good place to haunt if you're interested in Buddhist iconography. Because they have some wonderful, what's called Gandharan statues. Uh, Gandharan, if you ever see these statues, in it basically the Buddha looks like a Greek. Primarily because the artisans who actually created these statues were Greek. They were living in the area of Afghanistan, um, right on the west, on the eastern edge of Afghanistan, um, and they were basically artisans who were left over from Alexander the Great's period, and they colonised that area. And so the first artisans were basically reproducing these statues, and so you see the Buddha wearing a toga, <laughs> basically, uh, looking extremely Hellenistic in general. Uh, and then after that period, you start to see the um, growth of more Indian-looking statues. Of the Buddha. That's kind of slight story. He had already this, this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Ushnisha. <laughs> the bump on his head, yes, he did. Yes. Um, that again comes down to the kind of mythologies around the marks of the great man. Mm. I was supposed to have this, this sort of bump on top of the head called an Ushnish or Ushnisha. So, Nagarjuna is working at this period, and so there's all this change going on, but there's not a lot of practice going on. Um, and this is, I think, from our point of view, why Nagarjuna is important. Because he actually should be there as a curb to the temptation to want to get into loads of, I don't know, speculation. Loads of talking about practice and not doing it. If you want... Um, I suppose a very succinct um, soundbite as to what Nagarjuna is saying really goes in the, phrase, in the form of shut up. <laughs> yeah. Stop talking. The whole of Nagarjuna's thought is really to bring an end to speculative thinking. Um, his chief opponents were basically anybody. He could take on Buddhists and non-Buddhists alike. Um, he's taking on both sets, be they from Hindu and Jain quarters or Buddhist Abhidharmists. He was taking them all on. And his basic message is, anything you can say is a load of nonsense. That what is worth... Anything can only be experienced. 
It cannot be conceptualized. So conception, and as you probably gather from this, is a big aspect of the role of language in our perceptions. What is can only be perceived. It cannot be conceived. And that was effectively the message that Nagarjuna was really trying to bring forward. And the way that he did this, and I'm not going to go into too much detail because it gets into it, but it was a very particular method. It was known as a dialectical method. Um, he, if you picture him like this, Nagarjuna was a bit like a sort of philosophical virus. He got into people's other, into other people's systems and destroyed them from within. <laughs> this was his methodology. Um, and the way he was doing this was taking basically the logic of the arguments that were being used and shown that they would produce consequences that the opposition didn't want. Not by introducing any premises of his own, but simply by showing that all logic itself could be shown to produce the very opposite of what somebody needed to say. <coughs> so, Nagarjuna demonstrated, and I can, if anybody was interested in this, I can give you some titles of some text you can have a look at to see how this works. So, if somebody said something was or is, he would show it was, wasn't. If somebody showed it wasn't, he would show that it was. Can you give an example? <laughs> yes, if, he, if somebody said something was eternal, for example, as many of the opposition did, he would show by the very logic of the argument that it wasn't. You know, just by using the premises that were, they were introducing themselves, not by introducing any premises or arguments of his own, but just in some way subverting the logic showing that actually logic didn't prove anything. If you, if you don't know that, it's something you should wake up to. Logic doesn't prove anything. Yeah. All it shows is consistency. Yeah. It doesn't show any truth. Yeah. So if you start off with some premises um, that are aimed at showing that the moon is made of green cheese, <laughs> then you can do it quite consistently, but it wouldn't have any relation to truth about it. So he's doing that in terms of all the arguments that are being presented to him. Anything he has, I mean, basically, he says at one point in one of his um, texts, um, "I can't be refuted. I, I have no position. I can't be refuted. All you lot have positions. In other words, you all say you know something." This is not unlike the Socratic method. Have you ever come across that? Has anybody read Plato, Socrates? No. Yeah. Well, in, in the Socratic method, and it's very similar, so it's much easier to see, actually, sometimes in this, and I'll just make very brief mention to it. In the Socratic method, it was actually showing, for example, that, again, that the person who claimed to know something about something didn't actually know anything. So Socrates made himself a real pain in Athenian society, as probably many of you know. He went around asking people who were experts in their fields um, what something was. So he'd go up to a lawyer and said, you're a lawyer, tell me what justice is. And by the time that Socrates had finished with them, um, he'd basically shown them that they didn't know anything about justice whatsoever. You know, it didn't, didn't make him terribly popular with Athenian society, <laughs> as you can probably gather. <laughs> 
you know, he was a real pain in the bum. He did this to everybody uh, in the Athenian society. You know, you're a soldier, tell me what courage is. And you show them they had no absolutely nothing about courage. However, unlike the Socratic method, um, which ends up in these completely indecisive elements, basically what Nagarjuna is trying to show is that any talk about trying to say anything about anything is completely useless. Because it always ends up in a position. <laughs> now, the way he does this, and again, I can only... I haven't got the board to write on, but... The only way I can show you to basically um, explain this is he's showing you, for example, is that there are only basically four positions you can take if you want to say anything. Something is or something isn't. It both is or neither is or isn't. So, is, isn't, both is and isn't, and neither is and isn't. And now the latter two are not very often used. Um, but just in case you kind of want to wheel them in, he will show their complete nonsense as well. Now, the whole point about this, and as I said, it's slightly technical, but I want to end up at a, a particular point. The whole point about this was to lessen holding on to viewpoints. Remember we spoke about views as really being opinions, nothing else. They have no more substance than opinion, whether that be a thoroughly argued philosophical position which sometimes we can do for ourselves. We can think and think and think and think and think and try and work out what, what's going on in a particular experience. Um, but actually, it doesn't amount to anything in the end. It's just a load of talk. That's all it is. Or it might just be an ordinary, commonsensical opinion that's rooted in language and culture. Now, the whole of this movement that Nagarjuna instigated later became known as Prasangika, in Sanskrit. The word prasangika simply means consequentialist. Now the idea was that in using the methodology that he does to show, for example, somebody's holding to a particular position that something is that it isn't by their very own logic, or somebody saying something isn't and showing them that it is, by the very logic that they themselves are wielding, then you have a choice. Because you're presented with consequences of your own argument, not anybody else's argument, but of your argument, that you're presented with a consequence. Now, the consequence might be something you don't particularly want. Yeah. I mean, if you're somebody's holding on to something ultimate and unchanging and you're shown that there's no such kind of thing... Um, then you might not want the consequence. So what do you do? Um, you might reject that consequence and still hold to your opinion. Or you might change. You might let go of that opinion. You might let go of that particular position. Now, all this, as I say, sounds rather technical, doesn't it? You know, I kind of haven't really given you anything you pretty, pretty well majorly get your teeth into in terms of ordinary practice. However, if you think that actually most of our lives are spent developing and holding on to opinions and views about anything, that there is a real message to what Nagarjuna is actually saying, is actually to really begin to look at the consequences yourself of holding particular opinions, and actually learning to find out that any 
opinion is empty. Any particular view that we care to take is ultimately empty of any substance. So the whole movement or the whole impetus behind this was to lessen grasping after views and opinions. As a general idea, of course, Nagarjuna is reiterating too, and this is why I'm doing this after spending two whole talks on dependent origination, is that anything that comes to be is dependently originated. Anything that's dependently originated is therefore empty. Any view or opinion is a dependently originated phenomenon. Therefore, it's empty of any substance. <coughs> Yet you continue to grasp after it. There is a technique, there is a methodology, which some of you probably know about, which is something called the via negativa. Via negativa is, if you want to describe something, describe what it's not rather than what it is. And in a way, Nagarjuna's methodology is the same. It's a via negativa. So, let's take a, a non-Buddhist example. Um, St. Paul in Corinthians, trying to describe what love is. He says, love is not this, and love is not that. And love is not this, and love is not that. And so at the end of it, he's negated all the possible conceptions you can have about the notion of love. But leaves you still with a feeling of what it might be. The same with Nagarjuna. Anytime you hold an opinion you're going to, in a sense, have to examine it and demolish it and see its empty nature. It's a, it's a very, very powerful methodology. The chief way that the logic is handled in these arguments, and I didn't mention this, is what's called reductio ad absurdum, the reduction of any argument to absurdity. That's a pretty powerful methodology. Um, and this is one that in certain traditions, in Tibetan tradition, they still continue to use to a degree um, in, on the debate courtyard. Now, doing this, this particular uh, basic method, way of debating, way of examining, has a word for it in Tibetan, which is latan, um, which actually is a translation of something called vipassana. So actually, it's the same thing. It's analysing things, splitting them apart, showing, in a sense, their empty nature. Attempting to actually diffuse the temptation to wish to grasp after something and hold onto it. Because that's not knowledge. So philosophy, in the sense as an enterprise is something that Nagarjuna wishes to bring an end to, because philosophy, in its strict form, although it's a Greek word anyway, has no bearing on the Buddha's message. That's not what he was doing. He was not creating a philosophical system. He was not creating a philosophical view. He was talking about the bringing an end to dukkha. This is what you know, is at the forefront of the Buddha's message. Anything that he uses, I'm kind of reiterating stuff from other talks I've given here. 
anything that he's giving, that the Buddha is giving, that Nagarjuna sees as being important, is entirely practical. And it's not a viewpoint as such, in the sense of being a philosophical, ontological position. We are steeped, whether you like it or not, in positions. That's our basic stance in the world, is we're steeped in that. Even if it's only the small, and I think it's far larger than that, small clinging to self. This is all a viewpoint. If it's clinging to any idea of substantiality, any idea of certainty. Remember my opening talk here, radical contingency. Well, how do you stop radical contingency? How do you try to deal with it? One way of dealing with it is to come to a position where you know something. And it's certain. And it's, in a sense, stemming the flux, the, the ebb and the flow of experience and phenomena. So experience itself is nothing other than a flow. And we'll t- I'll talk about this a little bit later in relation to, which I think Rob has been calling Chittamatra or Yogacara. There's lots and lots of synonyms for this particular thing. So basically, Nagarjuna was demolishing anything that came in his way. Uh, the Mulamajakarikas, which is his chief one, there's a translation, a fairly modern translation by Stephen Batchelor, some of you might have seen, called Verses from the Centre, yeah, which is actually the primary text of Nagarjuna. Uh, my own viewpoint about this particular text is it's so terse and so difficult to understand, I actually think it was a series of lecture notes. You know, in other words, it would be something he would have expounded on rather than, you know, um, rather than a sutra or anything of that sort. It's very, very difficult to make much sense of it. Uh, And it's the sort of thing I would do for myself when I'm giving a more formal lecture, of actually just jot something down in order to keep the thread going. That's all. So it's extremely dense, extremely terse, but also trying to show there is no viewpoint that you can rest in. Only once you've demolished all possible viewpoints and that really means for yourself, you know, not everybody else's. If you don't hold them, there's no point in doing But Only when you've demolished all possible viewpoints for yourself can you come to reside in the what is, in the flow. Because anything you care to say ends up as being within the world of conventions. Because language is conventional. Okay, what does this all mean for us? <coughs> I bet you've been asking that question. Really. What does it all mean for us? Why is that important? Well, it means for one thing that if we have a world of conventions, then that world of conventions is literally, in a sense, all we, all we have in terms of communication. And so it's understanding the conventional world as conventions. Nothing else. Beginning to understand that everything we care to utter, every comparative, every word that we use is is a concept. Actually, the word um, 
in Sanskrit is really even more interesting because I say a concept. But when you talk about kalpana or vikalpa, these are often words that are used, they actually mean fictional construction. So all the words we use are fictional constructions. If you think about it, they cover up for us more differences than they ever, ever reveal. So you use the word tree to cover myriads of trees. Even when you narrow it down to a particular species of tree, it covers a myriad of that particular species of tree. So actually the technical word for this is every word that we use is a universal. Every word we use is a universal. It never gets down to something that Gajana thinks can only be revealed in experience, which is the unique particularity of everything in its arising and passing away. And again, there's a great flavour of this coming through in the early texts. Now just ponder that for a second. This is the movement away from any radicalising homogenisation, which we so often can do, and actually, again, can be very consolatory to us. Oh, it's all, you know, it's going, conceit again. It's just the same, (laughs) isn't it? Better, worse, the same? All things are the same. All all come from the same origin. All return to the same origin. What this does away with is the uniqueness of everything. Rather than being any movement towards any kind of overall, what I'm referring to as homogenization, in terms of sameness of origins or ultimate ends or whatever it might be, the Buddha and those, those that came after him were really trying to talk about the unique nature of all phenomena in its arising and its passing away. Everything had that unique characteristic to it. And perception, in the true sense of the word of perception, was a revealing of that uniqueness was actually, it was only revealed in perception. Conception couldn't do that, because conception by its very nature, if you just reflect on it for a second, conception really is a movement away from the uniqueness of any object by bringing it under a universal. We place it under these universal categories of language. So actually language has a very oblique relationship to what is. It might point it out, but it will never actually reveal it. <coughs> so it's a metaphor of language element. You see that all language is a metaphor. Language is a metaphor. Language is a series of, you know, put it in, in Buddhist terms, language is a series of conventions. Change the convention... And I get you as a whole, I don't know, group of speakers, if say you're the entirety of English language speakers, and I could get you to agree to a change in meaning, and that which I call cat I now call dog, and that which I call dog I now call cat, would it make any difference? It wouldn't, would it? At all. Because the terms themselves are just conventions. And if you 
are the arbiters of the convention, you know, as the totality of speakers of a particular language would be, then if you could all agree on the change in the convention, then it happens. And you can think of many, many words, certainly in English and probably in other languages as well, that have had exactly that happen to them. Yeah. As Eliot says, you know, words slip, slide and fragment. They don't remain nailed to rigid designations. Yeah. I mean, the big change, as we all know, in the last 20, probably even many years, is the movement of the term gay. Yeah. That's completely changed its connotations. Yeah. And this is the dynamic nature of language, and it's just a shift in the convention. That is all. So what do we have? We have a conventional world. And how do you hold that conventional world? That becomes the question for all of us. Are we identifying more with the conventional or more with the experience? Are we beginning to identify with or see and hold the conventions as being something static, rigid and substantial? Or are we seeing them merely as a flux in the convention? I don't think we do. We don't see them as merely a flux. We see them as something which tells us about the nature of things. And so words are taken as having almost rigid designations as pointing out something. Attaching themselves to an object. Now that doesn't really make much odds, does it? Um, in general, but when you start using judgments judgmental terms, moralistic and valuing terms, then it has a big impact on us. You know, when I start using words like beautiful and ugly, good and bad, you know, brave or coward, there comes into being with that something far more powerful, something far more captivating. Wittgenstein, the philosopher, once said, you know, a word gives us a picture and the picture holds us captive. It actually begins to hold your attention in a particular way and make you see things. Now, one of the things, I know there's many other language speakers in this room, you know, so when you have another language, even if it's another European language, but particularly if it's outside of the normal European languages, then each language divides the world up in a slightly different way. Yeah. Has slightly different conventions. So which language is correct? Dutch. <laughs> 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 That's patriotism for you. <laughs> can see what the problem is, can't you? If every language is dividing up the world in a slightly different way, which, one, which set of conventions is the right one, joking aside? <laughs> There's no way of deciding, is there? Because none of them do. Most of them are geared to pragmatic concerns. The structuring, you know, certain languages will use, for example, uh, will highly delineate colour. Others will run colours together under one word for example. Um, some languages, I mean, imagine this one, it's very different, 
Hopi Indian, for example, has no tenses in it. Yeah, imagine what a world that must be. Yeah, no past or future, or present. Only the immediate present, in a sense. <laughs> so it's a very, very different world that's being indicated by that. So what really is being said is that within this whole thought is that these, the language that we use even to talk about the teachings itself, even what I'm doing, can be tremendously misleading. So what is the only thing you can rely on? Yes, experience, that's right. The authority of your own experience. That's the only thing you have ultimately to rely on. You know, which is why, of course, the Buddha states right at the beginning of things like the Karnamasa term, things like that, you know, basically don't trust what I'm saying. Yeah. Because I'm saying it. Yeah. In fact, don't trust anybody who's saying anything without checking it against your own experience. Because otherwise, what do you end up with? Another belief system. That's all. Now, a very interesting point here, of course, is that often there's a word that gets terribly mistranslated. They probably hate me for saying this. You keep saying this, it's a terrible translation here, and there's an awful translation there. But here's one that gets really, really bad, badly translated, which is the term shrada, in, or sada in Pali, which is usually translated as faith, yeah, and really means trust. That's all. Trust based on experience. So why do you consider, continue to perhaps read the text or listen to teachers and that is because there's something in your experience which has been verified often. And there's stuff that you would still like to explore that you have to listen to the teachings and have trust in in order to engage in the journey. Nothing other than that. So it's not faith, you know, I often think that in some religious traditions, faith really is more about, more about I don't know, the more ridiculous a proposition is, the more faith you have to have. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's actually not a term that really should be evoked in Buddhism at all. The term that should be really used, I mean, I hesitate even using the word confidence because it has the same Latin root as faith, you know, fide, you know, which is that. You know, trust is about as good as it gets. <laughs> yeah. Is that because it's kind of like a mentality of wanting to, to direct somebody to something external in kind of iconography and all that kind of thing, and just how systems developed in the West? Mm. I think the way the way it can easily develop in the West, the way it is is the, the abnegation of responsibility. And I think you, know, you have in India, as you do in the ancient days, as you have in India to this day, a guru culture. A culture which says, you know, the guru is absolutely right, and every word they utter is a gem. <laughs> you know, until proven otherwise. Um, I joke, but often that's what the case is. It re requires this almost absolute faith in the guru that the guru is right. And I think the Buddha was trying to undermine all of that. And the Gajan is certainly trying to undermine it. You know, by saying, look, the only thing you can trust is your experience. 
That is all you have. That's the only validatory mechanism. And even if you think it through, logic won't get you anywhere. Because <laughs> yeah, your premises could be completely skewed. Yes, Noel. And our own experience is not a whole lot to trust if it's all conditioned in it. Well, that's why you're looking into the nature of its conditioning. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that is the task, as you, get great, as you will have gathered from this retreat. You know, it's actually looking at the nature of that experience, how it's conditioned and what we're placing in it. You know, what we're projecting into it. So in that sense you can trust it because you can begin to see, for example, I mean, all of that stuff I went through last week, dependent origination. Yeah. That's showing you how the conditioning process is taking place. And even if you only get a small glimpse of a little bit of the chain there, it has that sort of valorization power because it connects with your experience. Now, It's, it, it's almost like a loop kind of a thing, you know, if the Buddha bothered to do the teaching is because listening to the teaching can start influencing how we relate to our own experience and how we sort of uh, check the teaching with the experience, but there is a yeah. kind of a loop system. Yeah, I think there, there very much is. <coughs> what, what the teaching is attempting to do is propel you into an investigation. That's what it's attempting to do. Not any old investigation, but a particular investigation is about how you are. Both in terms of how you are at this moment as a conditioned process, and how you could be if you could undo that conditioned process. That's the inquiry. And as I say, it's not any old inquiry, because it's your life. <laughs> That's the important part about it. And the guardian is pushing it even further and saying, don't trust those arguments. Because all arguments are flawed. You know, philosophers, actually, I don't know if anybody, anybody knows Kant? Anybody come read Kant? In, in Kant, you'll find um, a section in the Critique of Pure Reason, which is very interesting, because it <laughs> says, you know, but basically, this is not a Buddhist quest, but I'll just, show, you know, just say this to, because it's very similar. He says there are really only three topics which are really important, God, immortality, and freedom. And what he describes is what he calls paralogisms of reason. And so, what he does on this section, the paralogisms, he'll give an argument for the existence of God, which is completely logical. An argument that proves that God doesn't exist, which is also completely logical. An argument that proves that there is immortality that's completely logical. And one that proves that there isn't immortality, and so on and so forth, for all of them. So it's saying logic and reason doesn't prove anything. When it's particularly asking those sorts of questions. Now, Transpose that into Buddhist terms, it's a very similar project. Yeah. When asking the really serious questions about your life, you're not going to be able to prove them logically. Well, you can, but it's not going to prove anything, because you can prove the opposite just as easily. 
You know, say, for example, and actually the freedom one is about the only one in some senses that comes close to any Buddhist arguments here. Is there freedom or isn't there? Well, you'll only know it by experiencing it. Not by having a nice logical argument for it. You know, working it out in your own head. I don't mean that you're going to be suddenly become philosophers and do this kind of logical reasoning. But we engage in these thought processes, don't we? When we think, do, um, you know, am I determined or do I have some degree of freedom in what I do? Well, it's going to prove itself, or not, dependent on your experiences. So experience becomes very, very important. Yeah, Bridget. What's the place of Chandrakirti's approach in this context? As Heike mentioned, I mean, that has premise mm. the aggregates, and that's not questioned. So yeah, that's a later development. It's a later. I think you'd have said it's nonsense. <laughs> But a useful sort of nonsense. <laughs> so in other words, sometimes we can use devices which are purely heuristic, purely pragmatic. They have an efficacy as long as you don't continue, you know, as long as you don't grasp after them as being ultimate. So that's another part of the argument that Nagarjuna is trying to Don't confuse the conventional with the ultimate. That is another element that arises out of the Prajnaparamita Sutras. Yeah. And it's there in the early text. What's called Paramatha Satya and Samvriti Satya. Yeah. Ultimate truth and conventional truth. Yeah. Now that can seem to pose a dualism in a way. Ultimate truth. What would ultimate truth look like? Would it be unchanging? Well, perhaps it would be, because it's ultimate. From the gardener's point of view, the ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth. <laughs> so what are you left with? Experience in the conventional world, that's all. So, the search for, yeah, the ultimate is another mythology that we can engage in. Another way of actually posing that is the terms of absolute truth. That's actually something that people often use. You know, what's the absolute truth about something? I used to send my... When I was teaching this stuff at the university, I used to send my students into a kind of head spin with this. So I think what Nagarjuna is teaching is the absolute absence of all absolutes. Should I say that slowly? <laughs> the absolute absence of all absolutes. So what is there? Every time I look for an absolute, there's shunya. That is all. Shunya, emptiness. It's empty. And if I, you know, basically, also Nagarja says in one point in one of his texts, those who try to claim that shunyata, emptiness, is the absolute, are incorrigible. <laughs> there is actually a book that used to be around. It's called The Central Philosophy of Buddhism. And I always used to say, this book ought to have a health warning on it. <laughs> you might have even come across it. It's by somebody called Murphy. Uh, in it, he tries to claim that what Nagarjuna um, is trying to do is turn shunyata into an ultimate existent. So instead of 
an absolute God or an absolute this, what we have now is an absolute emptiness, which is a thing. It's the absolute opposite of what Nagata is arguing, trying to show us. So there is only emptiness. And if you try to reify emptiness, what do you get? Another emptiness. And if you try to reify that, you get another emptiness. See how that works? You get into an infinite regression. Emptiness is empty. And what's it empty of? This would be a resounding answer, you know, like the chorus. Intrinsic existence. That's what emptiness is empty of. Any form of intrinsic existence. What are your speech patterns empty of? Because they're conventions. Well, if they're conventions, then like good and bad. They're empty of any intrinsic existence. Because only you can only have good if you posit bad. You can have black if you have white. Otherwise, these are differential terms. So, we have a world of conventions. Understood merely as a world of conventions without any underlying absolute behind it. Now, there's a great ethical story in this. You wouldn't believe it, would you, out of the stuff I said, but there is. It's a great ethical story, because it actually makes us look at our value judgments, the way that we're judging things. What are you, and I think I did a little bit of this with you anyway, in one of the previous talks. What are you doing when you're grasping after the beautiful? Or the good? You've got to kind of solidify it, haven't you, almost? You've got to grasp after it. You've got to hold on to it in some way or another. However, what we will have in life is good actions and bad actions, arising and passing away, with no ultimate goodness and no ultimate badness. And I would say again, as I went in, in the first few le- the first few talks I gave you, that this is the good news, isn't it? Because nobody's irredeemable. And if there was an essence of goodness that you were nailed to, you wouldn't be able to change. If there was an essence of badness, which is even more of a problem, that you were nailed to, you wouldn't be able to change. So, all of these terms are in a sense empty. They're conventions to describe behaviour. They're not ultimates. And this is very, very important because judgment, and I'm talking about important judgments here, have the feel of making, of being in some ways ultimate judgments. Don't they? We take, we don't just kind of say, well, I judge by you know, what I'm seeing that I think this is just rather what I'd call bad behaviour, but I could be wrong, it might be actually something else. <laughs> And I'm prepared to give this person the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) We don't do that, do we? Not in any serious sense of making judgments. (laughs) We turn that judgment into really an ultimate judgment about that action or that person. 
and then we hold on to it. Does yes, very much so, very much so, yeah. And even the word guilt seems to attach also to the essence of an individual upon which the verdict is made. Yeah. But there seems to be something unchanging within this person, to which this particular verdict is a very good word is attaching. John, even though it's um, it's like as you say, don't you um, think that conventionally, you know, we do have to sort of take a, a stand on certain mm. things? Yes, I think we do. <coughs> but conventionally. Yeah. <coughs> you know, you can see, I hope you can see, I mean, I'm saying you can see, I hope you can see. What all this does is it takes your grasping after the conventional as an ultimate and shakes it up, and perhaps now you begin to see it and hold it in a looser way as a conventional judgment. And it might be important to judge certain behaviour conventionally as being bad, you know, or the person conventionally as being bad, but without putting their ultimate judgment on that person and fixing them in a certain way. It's like I can judge... For example, somebody's done some bad behaviour without saying they're evil. Because evil then fixes them in a certain way. It says you can't possibly change, you're evil. Yeah, and people get incarcerated for very, very long periods of time because they're evil. Yeah, in tabular, in the tabloid press, this kind of rhetoric that is used here. But I think there is the tendency of the mind, and this is, this is the important part about this, isn't it? There is the tendency of the mind to want to make any judgment an ultimate judgment, rather than seeing it as a convention. Actually, and the other thing that really needs to be there, I think I'd use a Christian word in a sense about it, but I'll then transpose it into Buddhist terminology, I think there has to be humility about the judgment. Often there's no humility. In other words, there's no possibility that I could be wrong in saying this about somebody. Making this judgment. Yes, no. Well, actually, I, I think um, our uh, culture has done a whole big job in that direction. Because when I see the judging after World War II, mm -hmm of the Nazi and all these things. I mean, I'm completely amazed to see how they've been handled mm -hmm. without saying, you know, he's the evil one. Mm. I mean, I think there has been an, and the whole business between Germany and French mm. without also, you know, trying to escape everybody's responsibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think uh, on that respect, I'm always amazed to see how that's been handled, and still today. Yes, no, I mean, I wouldn't entirely agree. I mean, I think it vacillates. I think it vacillates. I think there's still a tendency in the Western world to make... Well, not just the Western world. I think it's just a tendency in the human mind to make judgments 
on others, you know, which are not simply seen as being conventional judgments. But this is the ultimate truth about this way the person is. Actually, I mean, in, in relationship to what you're talking about, I'll just mention, I mean, it's very interesting that Hannah Arendt, have you come across Hannah Arendt? I mean, she um, wrote this series of articles for the New York Times um, when Adolf Eichmann was taken to Jerusalem um, and put on trial, obviously, for war crimes. Um, and it was very interesting, because when she actually published it as a book, it had a subtitle, it was called Eichmann in Jerusalem, The Banality of Evil. And rather than talking about the possession of a particular quality, what I think she brought out very, very clearly that actually what we label in these things is actually an absence. Yeah, it was an absence of any fellow feeling that he had for others. Yeah, an absence rather than the possession of something which you'd call evil. She says she wasn't confronted. Actually, she says this very clearly in one point of the book. She says, I wasn't confronted when I interviewed him with the, with the kind of the uh, monstrousness of evil, but by its banality. Yeah. In other words, there were absences in this man's psyche. I, I can fit this into a very Buddhist framework if you want to ask me tomorrow in the question and answers if you're interested, um, because it actually fits in with Buddhist psychology extremely well, particularly in relation to, to those terms. That is what you about last week. Here in Otaba. Yeah. Shame. Yeah. Fear of wrongdoing, yeah, to use the old translation. Yeah, what he actually lacked was those. Now, if you want to ask me, I'll say more about that. But what you begin to see with this view is that what you're judging to be evil, bad, whatever you want to call beautiful, actually is empty. Other than any conventional sense that we use that label. It is just a convention with a changing set of references. Because what is now judged as bad, perhaps many hundreds of years ago, was entirely okay. Many, in fact, you know historically, many things that were accepted and seen as being absolutely all right and now considered to be you know, absolutely outside the pale of what we could possibly do. That shows us, in a sense, the changing nature of the moral ethical judgments that we make and how empty those moral ethical judgments are. Now, really, what is this trying to tell us? It's really trying to shake up our relationship to the language and the forms and the viewpoints that we take. Because, to kind of put none too fine a point on it, we take all those viewpoints far too seriously. Because we utter them, just like the thoughts that go through our head, they must be ours, then the judgments that we make on the world, they must be the case. <laughs> don't, don't you think, John, that um, if you don't have an opinion... Um, or a view on something in the conventional world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're regarded as kind of lacking. Yes, that's right, yes. You've got to have yeah. a viewpoint, you've got to have a, an opinion, even if you know nothing about it. That's right, it's absolutely right. Yes, in fact, people are judged very suspiciously, aren't they, if they don't have yeah. a, a, a strong opinions about things. 
here. <laughs> That's absolutely right. So we're again part of the conditioning process, and we've got to have opinions. Well, that might be the case, and I think it's going to be very hard for us not to have opinions or views. But how strongly do you hold them? Is there any room for the idea of progress? In relation to what? <laughs> In relation to perhaps the moral values of, uh, you know... 15,000 BC may not be the same one as today, and yeah. is there progress? Well, of course there is, in some senses, but it doesn't mean that we've got the ultimate truths, even now. I mean, the fact that we are certainly very different societies, obviously, because culturally as well we're very different than, say, the Buddha's period, you know, it's quite okay for a, a king in the Buddha's time to go from murder, well, the son of the king go from murder his father, you know, to take the throne. That was seen as a, you know, that was a, that was a kind of upward move. <laughs> Promotion. Promotion, that's right. Yes. I mean, that wasn't frowned on as it would be quite so much now. So, you know, joking aside from that, I mean, obviously there is, but the tendency is, no matter what the era is you live in, you tend to think, this is it. Yeah, Even in the course of our own lifetimes, it's shifted, hasn't it? Then it brings the idea that, you know, of course uh, there is all that what you are saying, but then at the same time it's like, it's almost our job, you know, to try to figure out what has to be sort of uh, kept and what should be left. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> This is, I mean, this is very useful stuff because it means you've got to come into a relationship with your society and question what's going on. Even if the society says it's right, sometimes it will be shown, if you really examine it, to be very empty of any ultimate value. And governments have a very you know, vested interest in promoting this is the right thing to do. Always, no matter what kind of government. I'm not making judgments about any kinds of government. Yeah. But they have a vested interest in pushing particular views yeah. that we can easily buy into. I actually think the German philosopher Nietzsche has a wonderful... Um, he writes a book called Twilight of the Idols. I don't know if any, any of you have read this. Um, which is a kind of play on Wagner's Goethe Demmer. Um But he actually has a lovely subtitle. He calls it How to Philosophize with a Hammer. He said, what you go around is tapping the values of your society. And they don't ring true, smash them. <laughs> now, the serious part about that is, from a Buddhist point of view, is that beginning to look in this way, which I think is being stimulated, obviously, from the Buddha, but also via Nagarjuna, is you're beginning to have to come into a relationship with just the stuff that you use all the time, language, as a series of conventions. How much do you believe in it? I mean, come on, we fall hook, line and sinker, but most of the stuff that runs through our head. Let alone the stuff that comes out of our mouths. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm overplaying it to make a point here. <laughs> but it's that buying into this set of conventions and seeing it as being the ultimate way things are. Yeah. And you can do that from little to big. But this position has a great deal of humility to it, if one wants to call it a, a, a position. 
but think you always might be wrong. It's a difficult one to translate even. I mean, right view, I mean, samaditi, which is actually the Pali um, for it. The word sama really means more like appropriate. That's translated as right. Um, so if you were going to translate all of the Eightfold Paths, really, it ought to be appropriate. You know, appropriate speech. You know, appropriate effort. Appropriate mindfulness, and so on and so forth. Mm. As you work your way through it. What this means is appropriate view. Why, do you, why is it appropriate? It's a, it's a view, if you like, or a, or a way of looking at things that's appropriate to the overcoming of dukkha. Mm. And will lead to the emancipation from dukkha. So what's useful? Yes. Mm. That's right. Rather than... And this is the reason I don't like the word right in that, is it sounds dogmatic. I've got the right view, and you've got the wrong view. Now, what is saying? I've got the appropriate view to this task. What about skillful? Is that a good translation? Skillful wouldn't be a good translation because it doesn't really literally mean. But it could be a skillful way of dealing with things. I mean, you could add that as a, as a secondary connotation in what you mean by appropriate. Yeah, but it's not actually directly there within the word sama. So it means actually that if you, you know, using your term, Gavin, I mean, that everything within the Eightfold Path is is a skillful way of moving towards the overcoming of dukkha, the overcoming of the problem, in many senses. But it's not a viewpoint, and, this is, and you know, I'm glad you asked that question. Because it's not a viewpoint in the sense of a dogmatic viewpoint, yeah, which actually just holds and won't change. So it's like a tool. You yeah, and, and used for this particular investigation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because actually, what is... I mean, the traditional way of looking at what is appropriate view, or right view, if I'm going to continue to use the old translation, which most people are familiar <coughs> with, what is it? It's the Four Noble Truths, or the Four Ennobling Truths. That's what it is. Yeah. And that's a way of looking at things. You know, to actually begin to understand Dukkha, to begin to understand there is a cause to it, that's... Puts you on an investigation again, doesn't it? Yeah. So let me try and draw draw this to a close, and we can pick it. I'm going to pick it up in a much more practical sense where we go in the, in the next talk. Please, you know, tomorrow we've got, we've got a question and answer session, so please ask questions about this. What we're trying to do is loosen up our whole relationship with our tendency to opinionatedness. Be that. Um, and you see this, you know, that, you know, suddenly when people take on the mantle of meditators or becoming Buddhist or whatever, they've just got another world view. That's all. And don't actually engage in the investigation. Now, I'm not suggesting that's at all about this group, but that can be the tendency when you take on, say, another cultural tradition, which, of course, Buddhism is, that, and I see this very unquestioningly, people take on everything from that culture that goes with it. Now, most of these cultural forms of Buddhism themselves that have come into the West are so heavily enculturated that actually a lot of the stuff you're getting is simply the culture, not the Buddhism. So there's actually a lot of, I don't know, called ersatz Thais walking around, and ersatz Tibetans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
because they take on the whole cultural manifestations as well as the, the, the Buddhist part, which is the really important part. Now that's, in a sense, what I'm trying to see, get you to see is the fact people can become believers very, very quickly. And you do that by taking on the whole package. Now, what this is, is cautionary. Extremely cautionary. It has to go hand in hand. I haven't mentioned this, but I will um, talk about this next time when we do a bit more of this and talk about Yogacara. The big other aspect that has to soften the whole of this approach as well is the development of compassion. The softening process. Understanding and the ethics of Shunyata has to be rooted in the soil of compassion. Because otherwise, you can just go around doing a demolition job on everything and everybody. As you can see, I mean, even from my brief description, I hope you can see that actually what Nagarjuna gives you is a very, very powerful tool for demolishing other people in terms of their arguments and that. But compassion, and its rootedness in compassion, is a softening process that if you, even if you are engaging, as he does in that kind of dialectic, that you're doing it out of compassion. Not out of a, a one-upmanship, and because it is a powerful methodology. And also, if we're doing it to ourselves, you know, in terms, and this is where the process really is, we're doing it for ourselves in this, then this examination of our views, our opinions, our relationship with the conventions of culture and language, and everything that speaks us. Because we don't actually speak a lot of the time, the culture and language is speaking through us. It does its own thing. When you begin to see that, it doesn't mean you have to beat yourself up. In fact, it should mean that we have a great deal of compassion. Because it's actually very understandable why we get in the forms that we do, why we get into the into the log jams that we do. There is so much bearing on you, on each individual. Okay, I'll leave it there. Just open up four or five minutes just to see if there's any reflections or comments. We'll have a proper session tomorrow. I think that... Yes, it is ultimately, yeah. That's right. That's Nagarjuna's position. I have no view, therefore I can't be refuted. Mm. If you state a view, and you state by, by its very nature, it has to be stated in language, which has logic to it, then by that very logic it can be undone. So I don't have any view, just experience. Easier said than done. <laughs> but that's right, absolutely right. I think habits are really manifested opinions. Yes, I do. Yeah. And some of them are being culturated as well. Yeah. Sometimes we have opinions that we don't even know we have, except when they're manifested in behaviour. You know, things like cognitive behavioural therapy, they would talk about these as being core beliefs. Those are the core beliefs, that, as you well know, that, that we hold, that actually govern our behaviour, what we do. And some of those might be our own, but some of them might be culturally developed as well.
Niels Groucho-Marx said uh, that um, those are my opinions. If you don't like, if you don't like them, I have others. <laughs> I think we're all, we're almost all to finish there, really. <laughs> Why not let Groucho have the last word? <laughs> Anybody wants to ask this? Just want to have a few more minutes. John, what's your take on? You were going to say opinion, wouldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> on something like the um, the five precepts that the Buddha comes up in several sutras, but mm. obviously, in terms of our cultural development in the last couple of thousand years, do you hold them quite lightly, or would you say that's something that's got? A long longevity to them. I mean, you, you gave the example about it being acceptable to perhaps kill the king at a certain point in time. Mm. Some people might say that that's a kind of universal ethic. What's your take on it? This is a topic for a whole talk, really, isn't it? Um, the five precepts in general, I'm going to say this very briefly and perhaps pick it up again mm. tomorrow if you want to reevaluate the question again. Five precepts I see as ways of inquiring into our ethical behaviour. They are not absolutes. You know, as the actual framing of them in the Pali, um, even in the Sanskrit versions, says they are rules of training. Um, they are default positions, actually, in the worst. If you can't use them as a means of investigating... Then it's very that it's very basic. Then it's that default position that says, "Okay, I don't do it." However, that's not what they say. Mm. Yeah, they're deliberately um, vague. You know, the five precepts. Um, they're often, I think, appallingly translated when I see them put in popular books on Buddhism. You know, basically, it's don't kill, don't steal, don't you know, conduct sexual misconduct, don't lie. Intoxicants, and that's not the way they're framed at all. You know, take the first one, and I've done this so many times with people that go to house, but I think it's really important as, a, as an issue, which is the first one's framed. I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. And that says a hell of a lot more than don't kill. Mm. It obviously says that, but it says a hell of a lot more. Mm. It gets you to inquire into your relations of harm with all kinds of beings, both human and non-human, others. Yeah. And actually comes into relation with some of the other aspects of the precepts as well. And the most appallingly, actually, in fact, I was speaking um, to somebody earlier today about this, the most appallingly translated of them all is the third precept, which is usually just about sexual misconduct. When you actually look at the proper formulation in the original language in Pali, it's actually about, you know, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from sensual and sexual misconduct. You know, sensual misconduct, my word, what a hell of a field that is, <laughs> you know, to look at. So, you know, could say, oh, no, I wouldn't engage in sexual misconduct, no, 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 it's not so. But all the sensual misconduct that goes on, <laughs> you know, it's enormous. So I think they're all, they're all ways of inquiring. You know, they're undertaking a rule of training to refrain from false speech. 
Well, you could actually expand that, as actually some teachers do. Actually, it means looking at all your speech acts. You know, appropriate speech. Well, how's appropriate speech defined in the Noble Eightfold Pass? Well, it isn't, is it? It tells you what it's not again. You know, you know, appropriate or right speech is not false speech. It's not harsh speech. It's not divisive speech. And the one I like best, it's not idle chatter. Yeah. As I've joked, is there anything left to say? <laughs> yeah. So, again, it's making you inquire, isn't it, into the quality of your speech acts. It actually makes you inquire into the quality even of the silence which makes up your speech acts. Because yeah. they say, you know, silence can speak a thousand words. Is it an appropriate silence? Mm. Or not? Yeah, we have all these different terms, don't we, for silences. Yeah, a pregnant silence, a comfortable silence, mm -hmm. <laughs> a tense silence. Mm. Yeah. That's all part of speech as well. There's a, there's a wonderfully funny, and I think some of you have heard me say this before, there's a wonderful short story by Heinrich Böll, who was a Nobel Prize winner quite a number of years ago, and he wrote a short story about somebody who was a sound engineer in the studio recording interviews. And what he did one day was he took out all the speech and spliced all the silences together. Because <laughs> <laughs> all the different silences said something different. <laughs> Particularly amongst the politicians, it was. <laughs> Tell what the silence is when there's no words around. Them. Ah, <laughs> but it's an interesting premise, isn't it? <laughs> it <just be> silent. <laughs> well, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's kind of my brief response to it. They're all tools for inquiry, yeah. but they can be taken. And I think, in terms of, say, a lot of ordinary <coughs> life, um, they can be taken almost as a rule. But that's not their main function. That's not their main function. Their main function is to get you to inquire into your ethical, moral acts in day-to-day -day existence. In many ways, even the vinaya, the um, monastic discipline, is no different from that. It's really about rules, about how people live together in a respectful way. They're a bit more than that, but I mean that's primarily what they are. But I'll say more if you want me to tomorrow. Okay, I think you're looking tired. Mm. <laughs> I think that's it for tonight. Mm. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.